Hey, uh, it is really, really good to see you. And kids, man, I love it when you guys are with us on these fifth Sundays. Uh, you guys bring such a wonderful energy and you take all of our seats. It is awesome, awesome, awesome to see you guys. So kids, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever said to your mom or dad, hey, watch this, look at me. Okay, yeah, several hands. Now, kids, if you did not raise your hand, I probably could go and ask your mom and dad, and they would say, oh yeah, definitely have said that. Now kids, I just want you to know, it's fine that you have said that. Because to say, hey, watch me, look at me, is just a way of you indicating like, I just need to know that you see me, you notice me, that I matter, that I have value, that I'm loved. Everybody needs that, even us adults. Now, us adults, we think we're too mature to say, hey, watch me, watch me. But many of us, we really like it when someone comes up and says, hey, I, I noticed what you did. Th thank you for that. You know, kind of like what Matt just did for me and Leanne. To, to hear, I love you. This, this is how God has, has wired us. We are created for relationship with him, and God put his image in us, and, and he's there to say, I love you. You have value. But what happens is sometimes that, that need to be noticed, it can go a little haywire. Uh, kids, do any of you have a classmate? We won't point out siblings. A classmate that says, hey, watch me, because I can do it better. I'm the best. Take notice of me, because I'm the greatest you'll ever see. I'm the goat. Any of you have a friend, classmate who's done that? Okay, hopefully you're not doing that, right? I, sadly, there are still adults that do that. Uh, many years ago, when uh, Leanne and I moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I was starting as the young adult pastor at this church. They'd never had a young adult ministry before. And uh, I, I needed to kind of know the young adults that were part of our church already. And so Leanne and I decided to hold a, a open house. And so we had like, I think like 50 young adults come to our house and I'm just trying to get to know him. And I end up in a conversation with this one young adult. He, he was single. He was working at uh, the kind of local aviation company as an engineer, super intelligent guy. But it was pretty obvious that he knew he was intelligent and didn't mind telling you just how intelligent he was. In fact, just about anywhere our conversation went, he had this amazing talent of steering the conversation back to just how great he is. And after about 15, 20 minutes of this, I started to get a little tired of it. The, the, the guy thought, I'm the absolute best and greatest. But I've known some people who are on the opposite side of that. People who think, you know, I'm not very good at anything. I am so horrible. I'm lousy. It's like if the, the one guy it was way too far on the extreme end of the confidence spectrum, this person is like falling off the confidence spectrum. Like I, I am no good anything at all. I have seen both of these personalities, both ends of the spectrum, within Christianity, within the church, within matters of faith. I have met pastors who are so far on the one end that even though they may say verbally, oh, the church is all about Jesus, everything about their actions and attitudes reveal, no, the church is actually all about me. Because their name is on the billboard out front. Their name, I mean, their picture is on the front of the website. 
Their, their social media account is all pushing their books that they've written, their podcasts that they host, the sermons that they preach. It's all about them. And it's their sense, their, what they're saying is, notice me, watch me, because I just need to know I have value. And yet I've known people on the other end within the church who they say, well, because I'm not like that celebrity pastor, I'm not an evangelist, I'm not a missionary, I couldn't do those things, God must not be able to use me at all. Today's story helps both of those people. Today's story is going to help the person who's a little too confident in their skills, their gifts. Because the people we're going to see today, they're going to do some amazing things, and we don't know their names. They're completely anonymous. Because it wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. But at the same time, we're going to see and realize that these guys were just everyday, average, ordinary Joes. And yet we see God do some incredible things through them. So if you, for some reason, are feeling like, I don't think God could use me, today's story is going to prove you wrong. God can use you, and he wants to use you, and we'll show you how he can begin to use you. So to see it for yourself, open up to Acts chapter 11. Open up to the book of Acts, head for chapter 11. Uh, my friend Steve Erickson and church planning coach, was here two weeks ago with us to uh, preach through Acts chapter 10 and then half of chapter 11. Uh, I was a really mean friend in asking him to preach that big of a chunk of scripture. And two, I will admit, I, I didn't want to give that one away. I really liked that chapter. But after hearing Steve preach it, I realized he did a better job than I probably would have done with it. And so I, I'm really grateful that Steve was able to come and preach through that. If you missed that sermon, I really encourage you, go to our YouTube page or find, use your podcast app and find our uh, podcast feed and listen to Steve's sermon on the heart of God. I thought he just did a really, really good job of helping us capture the big themes out of Acts 10 and 11. But we need to just to get a little recap of what he pointed out to us so that we can understand today's story a little better. In Acts 10, we meet a guy by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, means he was kind of high up within the Roman Empire in the army. But he was also a God-fearer. He was not a Jew, nor did he know about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But he knew there was a God. And so he sought to worship this God and to pray to this God. Well, as he's praying to God, God one day speaks to him and says, send some men to Joppa and ask for this guy named Peter. Well, as that vision is going on with Cornelius, Peter is having his own vision. He's up on top of this roof. He has this really crazy vision. He thinks it's because he's hungry. And then he realizes later that the story, the dream was for God to say, hey, I want you to go with these guys and go visit Cornelius. Because you see, this was a big deal as Peter was a Jew and Cornelius was a Gentile, a non-Jew. And, and Jewish people, while I'm sure they would be nice to Gentiles, they didn't go into their houses. They didn't worship with them. And yet Peter realizes God wants him to go into Cornelius' house, preach the gospel about Jesus, about his life, death, and resurrection. And he does so, and Cornelius puts his faith in Christ. 
He becomes the first Gentile convert, the first person to believe that this gospel, that, that Jesus' death wasn't just for the Jewish people, it was also for Gentiles like him. That begins to open the door to this gospel going beyond just the, the Jewish people into all people, which makes sense. Jesus in Acts 1 gave his mandate. We're going to talk about that mandate a little bit today. But in his mandate, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, heavily Jewish population areas, Samaria, which was people who were half Jewish, half Gentile, and to the ends of the earth. And that's a lot of Gentiles. And we're seeing it happen here in the book of Acts. The first few chapters were all happening in Jerusalem. We see it leak out into Judea. Then we see in Acts chapter 8, Philip in Samaria and a couple of stories there. And now we're seeing people head to the ends of the earth. All right, so that's our background. We're going to pick it up in uh, Acts 11 at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that, we read that story back in chapter 7 and chapter 8. So this persecution breaks out when Stephen, one of the deacons of the church, is, is martyred. So this persecution breaks out, the people are scattered, and they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, in other words, preaching the gospel, to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that means the Greeks, the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. In verse 19 there, we see this gospel as it's heading to the ends of the earth, getting to three different cities, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Upon telling us about Antioch, Luke then lets us stay there. The rest of our story pretty much stays in the city of Antioch. Antioch was a very, I guess you say, important city of its day. I, I read one commentary that said it was the third largest city. Jerusalem was the largest. I don't know what the second one was. But the population of Antioch at this time was roughly about 500,000 people. Half a million. And it's about 300 miles north. So if you are a Jewish person fleeing for your life because you believe Jesus was the Messiah, Antioch seems like a pretty safe place to flee to. Because 300 miles by foot would take you just a little over two weeks to travel. It's kind of far away. And if somehow some people from Jerusalem decide to come all the way to Antioch to hunt you down to arrest you for believing in that Jesus is the Messiah, there's 500,000 people. You might start to think you could hide among them. So it seemed like a relatively safe place. 
However, when some of the people get there, they can't help but talk about Jesus. Now we noticed in verse 19 that some of them, when they head to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, they preach only to the Jews. Now, if you think about it, though, that, that kind of makes sense. These are Jewish people who believed that Jesus, who was fully Jewish, was the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. So it would make sense that they'd bring this to their fellow Jews. It's just that when we get to verse 20, we see that some of them can't help themselves. They start talking about Jesus, even with some of the non-Jews. And these people believe in this crazy story of the resurrection. And they start to become believers, wanting to know, how can I also follow Jesus? Now, I'm going to spoil the story of the church of Antioch. This church goes on to become one of the most influential churches of its day. Like, if, if there was a church like the one in Antioch in, in our day, this would be the one holding the conferences. The, the, the pastors would be writing all the books. People would be traveling there to go to learn from this church. They, they would be church planting all over the place, and we'd see all these campuses of, from the Antioch church. It was influential. I, I think it's for a number of reasons. First of all, it is the very first Gentile church, other than maybe the house church that met in Cornelius' home. This is the, the, the first one. Second, um, I'm forgetting my second one for just a second. Um, you know, I forgot my second one every single time I ran through my uh, sermon. Oh yeah, down in verse 26, uh, we see that the pe people here are called Christians. Kids, do you know what the word Christian means? It means little Christ. In other words, the people who were part of the church were living in such a way that people looked at them and saw they're like Jesus. Thus, we get our statement, live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. They saw them and were like, these are like little Christs. They're Christians. This tells you about the way they were living. But also, the church in Antioch became the very first church to intentionally send missionaries. Now, here in the book of Acts, we've already seen some missionary activity. We saw in chapter 8, Philip doing some missionary activity in uh, uh, Samaria. We've seen guys here in verse 19 and verse 20 heading to these other cities. But again, they're doing this missionary activity. They're letting the gospel be on the move because they're being persecuted. They're fleeing for their lives. The church in Antioch, though, doesn't wait for persecution to break out. They actually send people intentionally. And we're going to get to see that at the beginning of chapter 13. I think that's why they are such a significant church. So, knowing this is such a significant church, let me ask you, who started this significant church? I mean, think about it. We are here in the book of Acts, where, oh, by the way, who, who wrote the book of Acts? Kids? L Luke, okay. And what was Luke's job before he started writing all these things down? He was a doctor, all right? Doctors have to be very, very detail-oriented. He's very detail-oriented. That's what made him such a great historian. And in his detail-orientedness, he tells us so many names. I, I can't verify this, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that if you take out the genealogies in other books of the Bible, that the book of Acts has more names per capita than maybe only one or two other books. All right, there are so many names in here. I mean, think about it. We're not even halfway through this book. We've already met Peter, Saul, Barnabas, Justice, Matthias, Ananias, Sapphira, Stephen, Philip. I mean, like, there's so many. 
and yet we don't have any name for who started this church. All we are told is it's them. Notice verse 20. But there were some of them. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Skip verse 22, go down to verse 23, that when Barnabas came, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful. Who planted this church? Them. I think Luke, if he really wanted to, could have found out the names of these guys. He's so meticulous in so many other details. I'm pretty sure he could have done it. And maybe he did know. But I think it's strategic that God does not let us get their names because I think that helps us. Because for the person who lives life like it's all about them, this is humbling. Because these guys gave their life to this and we don't, they don't even get any credit. They're just them. At the same time, for those of us who struggle thinking I'm not good enough, God could not use me. He used these very average, ordinary guys who were just simply fleeing for their lives to help one of the most influential churches of its day get started. God can do incredible things in you and through you. And so I want you to be one of them. So today, I'm going to point out four things to you about them. And yes, because I'm a super cool pastor it's an acronym, T-H-E-M, uh, all right? Our T today is uh, took the mandate personally. These guys took the mandate personally. I've already pointed out the mandate. Acts 1-8, Jesus tells his disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They took this personally. You see, when Jesus gave that on the top of the mountain in Acts 1-8, he was with his guys. But these guys know it wasn't just for the 12. A little later in chapter 1, we see that the number of disciples, the number of followers was about 120. This is before Pentecost. But it wasn't just for the 120. No, this mandate was also for the 3,000 that were added to the church in Acts chapter 2. It was also for those who were being added to their number day by day at the very end of chapter 2. It was also for the 5,000 that we see mentioned in chapter 4. In other words, this mandate is for anyone who's a follower of Jesus. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, this mandate is for you. It is, as it says in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of all nations. And the word go there can be translated as you are going. And you are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. If you follow Jesus... The mandate is for you. These guys couldn't help themselves. <laughs> this, think about it. They're fleeing from Jerusalem to save their lives. What got them in trouble? Talking about Jesus. And yet they walk into Antioch, city of 500,000 people, and they talk about Jesus. You see, the reason they couldn't help themselves is because this is what they treasured. They treasured Jesus. They treasured the gospel. They not only had heard the teaching of Jesus, possibly some of them seeing the miracles of Jesus, they know he died on a cross, was in a tomb for a couple of days, but then the greatest miracle the world has ever seen happened. He came back to life. How could they not tell people about this? And so this is what they treasured. This is what they valued. 
you will always talk about what you treasure. You, you will not be able to help yourself. If, if you value football, you will talk about football. If you love Legos, you'll tell everyone about your latest Lego creation. If you love your job, you love your family, whatever you treasure, that is what you're going to end up talking about. So the natural question is, what do you treasure? Some of you, you immediately know what you treasure. You, you, you're like, yeah, that, that's what I treasure. Some of you, though, you're like, I, I don't know. I just kind of go about my day. I, I don't know what I treasure. So to help you figure out what you treasure, consider this. Who, what, or where do you give your time, your money, your thoughts, your energy? If you can begin to figure out that, that's what you treasure. For these guys, they treasure Jesus. They treasure the gospel. And so they couldn't help but talk about it. And that is why they ended up taking the mandate personally. That leads us to our H. Our H today is that the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. Notice verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It dawned on me this week that Luke did not say, and the presence of God was with them. He, he could have said that, but he didn't. He didn't say, and the glory of the Lord was with them. I mean, it, clearly it was, but he didn't say that. He said, the hand of the Lord. Hands work. I think God inspires Luke to use this word so that we would realize that the work of saving, redeeming, and rescuing is not on us. That's God's role. Your role is just to simply be a tool in his hand. You simply share what God has done in you. You simply share the hope that you have in Christ. If you follow Jesus, you simply share from what you know. Now, by all means, feel free to go and study this more. I hope you do. Figure out maybe ways to, to share it, but realize the pressure's off. Someone is not going to put their faith in Jesus because you argue just the right way, right? There have been people who put their faith in Jesus and the person telling them could barely put sentences together. There are also people who are the greatest apologists our world has ever seen. They can give you every reason. They can, they can prove all of this is true. And there are people who will listen to them and go, they're fools. You can't save anyone. It's the work of God. But when you take the mandate personally, when you treasure Christ, when you give your wholeness to him, you create every opportunity for the hand of the Lord to be with you. Then notice the E, that the ears of others heard. The ears of others heard. Now, you're, you're probably thinking that, okay, yeah, the ears of the people in Antioch heard this gospel message and they accepted it, believed it. You, you would be correct. But there's another set of ears that I want you to, to see. Notice down in verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Think about this for a minute. Jerusalem is 300 miles south, a two weeks walk, and yet they hear about it. They didn't open up their phone and happen to see an Instagram reel. 
They didn't get a phone call. Guys, you got to hear what's happening. They didn't get their copy of the Antioch Times, open it up and go, whoa, have you seen this report? No, someone traveled the two weeks back, tells them, you guys are not going to believe what's happening. Just like Peter told us with Cornelius that the Gentiles are accepting Christ, it's happening in Antioch. So they send Barnabas to go and take a report, to see this for himself, because good news spreads. I mean, th th think about it. When a new restaurant comes to town and the food gets rave reviews, the news spreads. When an underdog team is like beating the odds and, and defeating everyone and continues to move on through the playoffs, the news spreads. That, that when you have something great happen, the news spreads. <laughs> if you had an extended family member that you haven't even seen in years win the lottery, you bet news will spread. Good news spreads. At the same time, bad news spreads. Right now, we are inundated with the bad news of what's happening between Israel and Gaza. For over a year and a half now, we've been hearing about the bad news of what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. This week, we heard the bad news of the hurricane attacking Mexico. We've heard, we've heard the bad news of the, the gunman in Maine. Bad news spreads. So good news spreads, bad news spreads. So let me ask you, what news is being spread about you? Is the bad news that you're selfish? You don't seem to care? That you ignore? You just seem caught up in your own thing? That all you can do is talk about how great you are? Or is there good news being spread of how you are selfless? How you listen? How you care? How you serve? How you sacrifice? These people in Antioch end up being called Christians, little Christ. In our day and age, that word Christian has lost so much of its value and meaning. That's why here at Riverwood, we don't use the word Christian. We talk about following Jesus. Are you living like Jesus lived and loving like Jesus loved? If not, God's mercies are new every day. So today is a brand new day to confess your sin and say, God, I want to give all of it to you. How are you living? Because there is news spreading, and the ears of others will hear. All right, so to be one of them, you got to take the mandate personally. You've got to pray for the hand of the Lord to be upon you and with you, and, and then trusting that the ears of others will hear this amazing gospel story. And then that leads into our M. The M today is that many lives were changed. Many lives were changed. At first, you're probably thinking, oh, well, the lives of the people in Antioch changed. And you would be absolutely correct. We saw it there in verse 21 uh, that, that many lives were, were being changed, and so that's why news got back to Jerusalem. I want you to notice there's a second wave of lives being changed. When Barnabas arrives, notice what happens. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he, Barnabas, was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas hears about all these people who, who, who put their faith in Jesus. He ends up going there to check it all out for himself. And, and when he gets there, he realizes, whoa! And so he exhorts them, he encourages them, which makes sense, he's Barnabas. By the way, if you don't know, Barnabas is not his name. His, his given name was John. 
Barnabas was a nickname, means son of encouragement. How would you love to live your life in such a way that people just nickname you by how cool you are? Like, man, you are the encourager, right? So you walk into a room, people are like, hey, Barney, how you doing? Because you encourage me so much. He gets there and he begins to encourage them. But the way he encourages the believers, he ends up sharing the gospel. Some of the people who've been on the tertiary, the outside, realize this is all true. And they put their faith in Jesus. And so now the church is like almost doubled. More people put their faith in Jesus. Many lives are changed. But then Luke does something a little quirky, a little different. Back in chapter 2, he tells us about the 3,000 people who put, come to Christ, and then he kind of moves on. In chapter 4, he tells us about the 5,000, and then he moves on. So if he kept his same pattern going, he would come here, tell us that many lives were saved, and he'd move on. But he doesn't. He wants us to see one more life changed, a very specific life. Pick it up in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, we got to go back and catch just a little bit of Saul's story. Saul, on the road to Damascus, and you can see Damascus there on the, on the map, on the road, he ends up having that vision, realizes he's wrong. There really was a Jesus. He really did die on a cross, and he really did rise from the dead. That moment changed his life. And so instead of going to Damascus to arrest people who are following Jesus, he goes to and begins to try to invite people to follow Jesus. Well, he ends up fleeing Damascus, goes back to Jerusalem to save his life. But he gets to Jerusalem, and you can imagine how his former friends felt. I mean, Saul was rising up the ranks of Judaism. He was on, well on his way to becoming a very influential rabbi. And so for him to switch sides, to join the other team, to help these crazy Jesus followers, it, it felt like the utmost betrayal. And so his former friends decide, we got to eliminate him. This is bad for our cause. This is bad for our faith. We need to kill Saul. Well, I'm guessing, this, I'm totally reading into this, I would think that there was probably one of his former friends hears about this plot to kill him, still likes him, doesn't understand why Saul's saying Jesus is the Messiah, but they still tell him, hey, they're plotting to kill you. Saul ends up telling some people, they help sneak him out of Jerusalem at night, they get him to Caesarea, and then we learn he goes back home to Tarsus. So here's Barnabas, comes to Antioch, he sees what is happening, but rather than go back to Jerusalem to tell the elders, you're not going to believe it, it's, it's all true, it's so awesome to see what God's doing. Nor does he just stay to enjoy this environment and be a part of it and even help lead it. No, he hightails it up to Tarsus. Don't know if he jumped on a ship. I don't know if he walked around. All I know is he gets there, finds Saul. It's like, dude, you got to come back to Antioch. And so they make it back to Antioch and they stay there for an entire year. Why? Because this was fertile ground for Saul. This was like going to be the greatest internship Saul could possibly have. We're going to see through the rest of Acts, starting in chapter 13, the way God begins to use Saul. But to prepare him for that, he needs to be in an environment where he's able to just serve, love, disciple, as he himself is being loved and discipled. That's one more life that was changed. And because of what God did in Saul in Antioch, 
he gets intentionally sent out where he ends up traveling the world. Many people put their faith in Jesus. Many churches are planted. We end up with what we know as many of the books of the Bible in the New Testament, all because Barnabas went to Tarsus and brought him back, and many lives were saved. Any of you uh, know the name Edward uh, Kimball? I think that was the, the name. Uh, yeah, Edward Kimball from the 1800s. No? That's okay. I, I didn't either. He was born in Massachusetts in 1823. After graduating high school, trying to figure out what career he wants to do, he decides to become a public school teacher. But he only does that for just a handful of years. At the age of 23, I don't know if he ended up starting the company or just joining the company, but his name was on the company of a carpet dealer. I have no idea if they sold carpet to other companies, if they sold carpet directly to consumers, but it was a new growing industry and he made a lot of money. It would have been easy back in the 1850s. Just simply be a nice guy, run your business, go to church on Sunday and call it good. But for Edward, that wasn't enough. Edward took the mandate personally. So he began to serve at his church and he took on the teenage boys Sunday school class. This rowdy group, and he's willing to step in there and try and tell them about Jesus. Well, one Sunday, there was a new kid in the class. Edward asks the class to open up to the book of John. Well, this new kid had no idea where the book of John is. He's got his Bible, and okay, so he opens it to the front, and he starts looking through the table of contents, and some of the boys around him start to laugh. Well, Edward, rather than chide the young man for not knowing where John was, simply takes his Bible, says, here, here you go, I've already got it open. In fact, why don't you just stand up and, and read? And so the young man read the passage for that day. Well, that young man was so touched by Edward's kindness that he ended up coming back the next week and the next and the next for an entire year. Year later, Edward ends up at this young man's uh, business. This young man worked for a shoe store. So he, he, he's down there and they're having a conversation. And at this shoe store, Edward ends up sharing the gospel, probably yet again, but this time it sinks in. And this 18-year-old gave his life to Jesus right there. Because Edward took the mandate personally, the hand of God was with him, the ears of this young man were opened, heard the gospel, and his life was changed. Now, you may be saying, oh, but Aaron, you just failed on your last point. It's many lives were changed. This was just one young man. Ah, but you see, that one young man was a guy by the name of D.L. Moody. Moody went on to become one of the greatest evangelists America ever saw. It is estimated that he preached the gospel to over 100 million people. It wasn't until just a few years ago that Billy Graham broke his record in preaching to the most people. Before that, it was D.L. Moody. So you see, many lives were changed. All because some business owner decided to give his life to help young teenage boys understand the love of God. And one young man put his faith in Jesus and the world was changed. Edward did not say it was all about him, but he also didn't believe the lie that God couldn't use him. He was a them. I want you to be one of them. That means you've got to give your life to Jesus and take this mandate personally. It means you've got to pray and trust that the hand of God will be with you. It means you pray that the good news of this gospel spreads. And you pray that many lives will be changed. Maybe it won't be you that changes the many lives. 
Maybe you'll be like Edward and you'll change one. But maybe the one you change is the one God uses to change the world. So God can do it. Will you give yourself to it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters in Christ that, uh, that they would hear you calling them to give it all, to give absolutely everything to you. Father, some of us, we, we like our lives. We like our schedule. We like our family. We kind of like what we have. And so it's a little scary to open these things up to you. And so, God, I, I pray that you would give us the courage to at least say, God, I'm willing. Will you make me willing? Lord, there are some people here that they are wanting to live this way. They're wanting to be one of them. God, I pray you'd answer their prayers, that you'd put them in a spot, whether it's in their current workplace or a new place, right? In their, in their, their college or in their school, that, that wherever you've placed them, you would give them the opportunities to make disciples. God, I, I pray for the people that have been feeling like, I, I can't do this, I'm not good enough, that you would shatter that lie, that because your image is in them and you put your spirit in them, you can do anything you want in them and through them. And so, Father, I pray you'd give them the courage to completely surrender and then the courage to step up, to, to find a place to serve, to begin a conversation, to be used by you, that they would be one of them. And Lord, I also pray for the person that is either here in person or they're joining online or listening to the podcast later, and they don't know you. They haven't surrendered their life to you. I pray that right now, you just give them the courage to say yes to following Jesus. That they would realize that you, Jesus, love them so much, you came to die on a cross for their sin. And that sin can be forgiven. And they can come into a relationship with you. You will cross them over from the spiritual darkness into spiritual light. You, you, you take them from being a spiritual orphan to your son or daughter you would take them from spiritual death to walk in newness of life. So Father, help them right now as they pray. Help them right now as they surrender. Help them as they give this to you. But Lord, I pray for a person that knows these things theologically and yet the worries of life right now or the sin that is so easily entangling them is keeping them from being one of them. That when they go to work, they're just at work. When they're at home, their mind is just swirling. When, when they're alone, they're being pulled in so many different directions. They're wanting to give in to the addiction. They're wanting to give in to doubt. They're wanting to just walk away. Father God, I believe you are a healing God. And so would you bring your Holy Spirit to heal hearts, and minds because I think that our enemy wants to mess things up for them so that they can't go and be one of them so Father I pray right now for your Holy Spirit to be in this room to be in these hearts to draw and minister and heal so Father as we go to the communion elements as we sing as we pray use these moments to accomplish what you want to and need to so Father soften us make us willing Fill us with courage to be one of them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.